Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Um, started off with the normal uh, links I liked, you know, summarising the, the things I've tweeted and read on the internet in the previous week. One of the things that jumped out at me was buried in a, a, a quite interesting essay from Our World in Data, which is a great website. If you haven't signed up, please do so. They had an essay on what is economic growth, um, which I think will annoy the degrowthers pretty, 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 uh, pretty much. But in there, they had this really interesting graph of the falling price of books, and it looked from 1250, the year 1250, up to about 1600. What it found was that in 1250, a book cost two to eight months average wages. And that was down to one day's wages by 1600. But yeah, if you think about it now, it's down to an hour's wage. Uh, and for open access books, it's down to nothing. So just really interesting to see how, how technology transforms access to knowledge in that particular historical context. And the people love a good, a good graph. And that went um, quite viral on Twitter. The second post of the week, um, I am a sort of secret and slightly guilty fan of The Economist. Now, I know The Economist has some rather right-wing views, especially on economics, but it's often really good um, and is very good on liberal values, individual rights. Um, and basically, as long as it's not talking about economics, it's great. And they did a big and extraordinary number crunch on the figures, on the stats on COVID deaths. And what they managed to develop was a model for estimating the number of excess deaths. Um, so that is, you take the average number of deaths across the world, country by country, and you find a way to compare the, that average with what's actually happened in the last 12 months. And that's a better, especially when you know, deaths aren't being put down to COVID, they aren't being detected. That figure for excess deaths is a better guide to how many people are dying from COVID than the official reports. So what they found, the, the headline figure is that the number of people who've actually died from COVID is three times greater. It's 10 million people. And they've got a sort of confidence interview interval between 7 and 12 million. Um, so our central estimate is that uh, the death toll is three times the official count. Um, and there's a video which explains all the methodology for the geeks among you about how they constructed this. Where, where there were deaths, stats on deaths, it was relatively easy. Where the, the stats either don't exist or are not reliable, they, had, they used 121 different variables to construct a model, for example, by comparing it to neighboring countries and that kind of thing, regional averages and so on. Um, so, yeah, really extraordinary piece of, of, of statistical um, analysis. Um, but it goes much further than this. So, OK, three times the number of people have died than we thought. The most important insight from our work has been that COVID-19 has been harder on the poor than anyone knew. Our modelling shows that when you count all the bodies, you see that the pandemic has spread remorselessly from the rich, connected world to poorer, more isolated places. So most of the deaths caused by COVID but not attributed, so the deaths that have escaped, those, uh, those 7 million deaths that have not been recorded, are found in low and middle income countries. So in the OECD, the Club of Rich Countries, the number of excess deaths is only about 1.17. So it adds about 17% to the official stats. But when you get to sub-Saharan Africa, their estimate is it's 14 times greater. Yeah. 
so 14 times more people have died than have been recognized in the official stats. So, I mean, for me, this is a, a really important piece of work because, you know, I've, I've been thinking for a while that, you know, will COVID be like HIV AIDS uh, in the sense that it starts off uh, as a northern disease and ends up as a disease of poverty. And it looks like that's happening much faster than we thought. So this is a big wake up, just as the, uh, the vaccine program is in horrible trouble, massive inequality and unfairness and who gets the vaccines. This should actually give more ammunition to the people who are arguing for you know, uh, vaccines to get to poor countries and poor people as soon as possible because they'll be much harder hit than we realised. So thank you, The Economist, for doing that piece of work. I was surprised it didn't get more pickup in the press. It seems extraordinarily important to me. Maybe I just missed it. So I'm hoping that it will you know, be, inform the wider discussion about the response to COVID. Third post of the week was this series I've been doing for the uh, uh, Africa Centre and a programme I work on there called the Centre on Public Authority in International Development. And it's a, a series of blogs on research impact. And I realised that what I'm doing is kind of new for me in that when you look at research impact, you often look at, uh, you, know, you have a very sort of big selection bias towards pieces of research which have had a big impact. And then you go back and try and trace how that happened. But with the... Uh, the, with this series, I'm kind of not doing that. I'm just looking at their research in general. And what you find is much smaller impacts, you know, less splashy, we change this law kind of impacts, just little, and in a way it's more relevant to most researchers who are not doing these big high profile pieces of impact work, but they are trying to change the world one, you know, a bit at a time. So this was, this was um, uh, looking at the work of Claire Elder, who works on Somalia. And uh, she's, um, she looks at two issues, the role of the Somali diaspora in shaping the development of Somalia in recent years and how the private sector fills in for and challenges the role of the state in places which are emerging from war. And so I had a chat with her about, you know, and she's churning out academic papers and doing what academics do, what researchers do. But I talked to her a bit about impact and, and the impact of her work and I found out a few other things really. First, the importance of how she did her PhD, or, the, or even before the PhD. She was a research analyst for the International Crisis Group, and she was based in East Africa, in Nairobi, and she didn't realize at the time, but she would continue to rely on her knowledge of international organizations and her connections to politicians, NGOs, diaspora figures in the future as she became more involved in the research agenda and impact. So that, those, those networks, those relationships you build up in one job, incredibly important when you come to be a researcher. Um, and what her, her headline message is the, research, the return, yeah, the diaspora has become super fashionable. You know, the, the donors think, oh great, diasporas, they've got loads of money, they've got loads of skills. If we can just harness the diaspora, we can transform any given country. And what she finds is the return of the diaspora isn't the magic bullet that many in the aid sector hoped for. Diaspora returnees can be highly politicised, pursue their own interests and use their connections with the aid sector to siphon off resources to them and their friends. Power and politics don't disappear just because someone is returning from a spell in Europe or the US. So this kind of reminder is something that she's you know, talked to people about. It's had impact. You know, the World Bank uh, has abandoned the diaspora component of one of its capacity building programs as a result. You know, so, so it does have impact. Um, 
but it's very hard to prove it. And this is another, the second point of the, of, the, of the post. So, you know, like many academics, what Claire is doing is highlighting problems. You know, she's not saying I have the solution to harnessing the diaspora. She's saying, take a harder look. It's not as simple as you think. It's not a panacea. Um, and that's if that's taken seriously and donors act upon it, it's much harder to prove impact than if you've come up with a new policy idea or a toolkit which people adopt. You know, if you're just saying there's a problem, you need to look again. It's much harder to attach a specific outcome to your work. So I suppose the lessons I take from it um, are three. One is the act of researching for a PhD can itself lay the groundwork for future influence. Exploring a problem can have impact even if you're a bit hazy on solutions, but it makes it much harder to attribute. And then the final one is one of the reasons Claire, I think, got a lot of interest in her work is that this is a bit of a, a new issue. You know, migration is not new, but the idea of the diaspora as a thing and a, a political and ethnic economic player has become uh, has really gone up the agenda recently in the aid business and so when you come in with a new idea there's a lot more hunger there's far fewer researchers out there talking about it so coming up with a new idea in a sense that the system is more malleable and more likely to be interested in your work so you know these are not earth-shattering conclusions but just interesting to look at how a bunch of different researchers have had impact in different ways and I'm liking the way that the each of the conversations with researchers is highlighting a different issue. And I'll write a sort of summary blog probably next week. Final post of the week was just a bit of fun. So in 2011, the blog has been going for a very long time. In 2011, I, I got uh, an email from a colleague, Nicholas Pielek, um, in, in uh, Oxham, a funny. And it's just, it was a table of what Brits, what British people say, what Dutch people hear, uh, and what... The British people actually mean and it, it was very very on point very sharp very funny but I couldn't find out who had done it uh, who had written it so I put it up on the blog and it went absolutely massive it's one of the most read blogs you know on the on you know over the over the 13 years of the blog's existence um, and then this week the author got in touch and said oi why aren't I getting any credit for my work and I was so happy because yeah, it gives me a chance to to, to, to sort it out just some examples of the sort of things that are in there. Yeah, a Brit says, that's a very brave proposal. What they mean is, you're insane. And what the Dutch person hears is, oh, he thinks I have courage. Or, I'll bear it in mind, which means I've forgotten it already. And the Dutch person hears, they will probably do it. And final one from, there's loads of them in this table, but you must come for dinner. And what they mean is, it's not an invitation, I'm just being polite. Well, the Dutch person is, oh, oh, good, I'll get an invitation soon. So, yeah, I think the Dutch are the most uh, straightforward and blunt, and the British are probably the most devious. So the gap is bigger there, but I'm sure this is replicated in many other conversations between different uh, cultures in Europe. Now, on to the author. So the author is Nanette Rittmeester, uh, Dutch, um, and she created it. 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, in the late 1990s, for her organisation Expertise in Labour Mobility. And so there's a link here to a 2011 paper, bizarrely published in the Journal of Paediatric Pulmonology. They just decided to have some fun too. Um, and a LinkedIn post, and we are forever in her debt. And the even more exciting, I'm going to talk to her next week and just ask her 
a bit about this and a bit about, you know, I, 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 I'm proposing to her that she does a kind of Brexit version. It would be very nice to see what Brits say when they talk about Europe and Brexit, what they mean and what Europeans hear, but that may be too ambitious. Anyway, it was nice to finish on a funny and you know, there's always enormous appetite for these things on the blog. So if you've got any others like this, do send them over and otherwise have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye.